Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. Let's pray together, would you? Our Father, just to read that in itself is evidence that you have given us your word. It is of God. It is supernatural. And in it we read that you've given us eternal life through the suffering of your servant, our Lord, the Lord of all, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we'd remember his suffering as we delight in him this morning, um, our Savior, the one who suffered in our place, and that we would worship him because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're coming again to Psalm 53, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, the servant psalm of Isaiah. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, now as we recount already what we've already seen in this psalm, we know that the servant first, in the first place, is spoken of as being exalted to this highest degree. But we've also been, and we've seen the astonishment to read that his exaltation would come at a cost. In fact, the very next verse after we read of his exaltation is the astonished onlookers at his inhuman qualities in his sufferings. So much did he suffer that he did not even remain recognizably human. Sure, kings would shut their mouths because of him, perhaps amazed that one so great as he would condescend so low, lower than any man. But not many would believe in him, it would seem, as we begin chapter 53, who has believed our report. After all, naturally speaking, as we learned last time, there is nothing to be desired in him. And by the end of verse 3, we are left with the question of why anyone like him would be entrusted to God's service and exalted to the degree even of the deity. Why would God give such attention to this servant? But of all the paradoxes of the servant that we've seen so far, we've not yet come to the deepest and most profound, and yet also the reason why God has entrusted him with this calling. Verses 4 through 6, our text this morning set forth the reason for the servant's humility. Why did he suffer so deeply, so greatly, more than any man? And so what would lead to his subsequent exaltation? And that is, as we see in these verses, that he became in himself a substitute for our sin. And so we see first this morning the sin bearer in verse 4. If you're familiar with the law that was given to Moses and how God outlined how they were to observe it. You also know that as a part of that law 
was a set of ceremonies they were to follow. You could say religiously follow. And perhaps most importantly, it's been called the pivotal chapter in Leviticus and the laying out of the ceremonial laws and, and rites that Leviticus 16, which outlines the Day of Atonement, was that pivotal day, that pivotal observance in the life of the covenant people of Israel, God's covenant people. This has been called the pivotal chapter in Leviticus because this is where the relationship between God, a holy God, and his people, sinners as they were, would be signified as resting upon the necessary removal and even the atonement of sin. God cannot relate to sinners while sin remains between God and those sinners. Sin will not dwell in his presence. He is a holy God. Sin separates mankind from God's blessed presence. In the mercy of God, therefore, one of the most important aspects of the Day of Atonement was the bearing away of the guilt of sin from among Israel. And this was signified by something that has become to us a sort of a throwaway term, something that we use probably and in our minds when we use it, not the best ideas come to, to mind. But to Israel, the idea of what we call the scapegoat was extremely important. It was essential for the maintenance of their relationship with God. After making an atonement for sacrifice for himself and for the people, the high priest was to do this in Leviticus 16.20, verses 22 through verse 22. Leviticus 16.20 through verse 22. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Now that implies there's a dead goat already. 21, verse 21, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. Verse 22 is all important. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now, as we read Isaiah 53, verse 4, consider that. It says there, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So as the goat bore away the iniquities of the people, so here the servant of the Lord, this one that is still being foretold of, the servant of the Lord is here said to bear or carry away our griefs and sorrows. In verse 3, the servant was said to be acquainted with these very things, with grief and sorrow. And now we learn that they were not properly his, but ours, in verse 4. There are griefs. There are our sorrows. And this is something extremely important for us to remember as we come this morning to the Lord's table and we come before God in worship. As we see Christ in this servant psalm, 
His lowliness wasn't properly his. His condescension, his suffering, his grief, his sorrow was not properly his own. He is never mentioned in this entire servant psalm to be deserving of any of it. Shunning the grief, the pain, the misery, the torture, the penalty for sin, the bearing of our griefs and sorrows, the judgment. He is never once indicated, it is never once indicated that he was the one who deserved it in this entire servant psalm. When we come to the New Testament, the only direct reference we see of this verse is in Matthew 8:17, which comes after Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and casts out demons and heals the sick. And I really appreciate the observant, the observant remarks of Alec Motyer when he sees Matthew say that this is in fulfillment of what we've just read. Because what we're seeing here is grief and sorrow, which is the outworking of sin in the world. The, the Westminster Catechism says that mankind is in misery because of sin. That's the reason why. These griefs and sorrows. When Jesus came when he healed Peter's mother-in-law, when he casts out demon when he healed other people's illnesses. We know what that's like, the grief and sorrow. It's become close. We know the effects of it even today. The effects of sin and the fall in the world is great. And Alec Motyer said this demonstrates that our total redemption, body as well as soul, comes from him, from this Christ, this fulfillment of this prophecy of the suffering servant. It's about Jesus. It comes from him and from his work on the cross. And in the new heaven and new earth, sickness and pain and tears will be wiped away forever. It will be completely banished as will sin. Here, however, he rightly says in Isaiah 53 verse 4, the main emphasis is on the damage, the infirmities and blight, the sorrows that sin brings to us in our lives. It's about sin, primarily. And the effects of sin is grief and sorrow. But he says, Isaiah says in chapter 53, verse 12, further down, what he bore ultimately to bear our griefs and sorrows, what he bore ultimately, he says there, was the sin of many. Was our sin. And since verse 1, it is, We have seen that this is speaking the representative of Israel or that of the people of God who, he says, who has believed what he has heard from us. And we know by the text that at one time, even those who did not believe in the servant, these were those who were speaking that they were the ones now reporting that people are not believing. They themselves were not believing. And that's that's what we can... uh, come to here when we see this phrase there in verse 4, we esteemed him, yet we did. This, this should teach us that those of us who have believed now at one time, we were of those who did not esteem him righteous. We did not esteem him highly. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We observed that it was his due that he would bear 
grief and sorrow. In other words, this is a wrong estimation of him. They came to a place of true faith, the one speaking. Surely he has borne, they said at the beginning of the verse, surely he has borne our griefs, you see, our sorrows. But at the time, they're looking at this and they're saying, God must really hate him. God must hate him. This one who is suffering to the degree that no other human being could ever or would ever suffer except those who writhe in the agony of hell itself, he must have the hatred of God upon him. He must be hated and despised by God. They didn't see any natural greatness in him, no goodness in him. How could they when he was suffering so deeply? I did a little experiment with my own children this week. I read them this, and I asked them, is that a wicked man or is that a righteous man? And right away they said, that must be a wicked man. Who suffers like this but a wicked person? The most wicked person suffers like this. And that's what we all see when we behold him, when Jesus is beheld there on the cross and people walk by him and they wag their heads and they say, this is the despised one, rejected of men. But why was he rejected? He was rejected because he bore our griefs, our sorrows, our sin. And so in a way they passed by and they mocked him and they railed at him. And every unbeliever would do the same. And they scorned Christ as if he were stricken and smitten by God and afflicted because they did not understand that it was the griefs and sorrows of their own that he bore, that held him there. And this, according to the will of God, we see. The first, the first part of this verse admits of what at first they did not admit, that their salvation came because Jesus bore away their guilt. You see, it's only when we see the terrible nature of the cross that will understand the terrible nature of our sin. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose your evil great, consider here the nature rightly. He, the Son of God, bore your sin. He bore your griefs, your sorrows. You know the weight of sorrow. You know the weight of grief in this life. And that's but a taste of what he bore in your place. So the first part of this verse admits we have to recognize what we did not admit to, but what we came to admit to, what we came to believe, that Jesus bore our guilt, our sorrow. And it becomes clear in the second point, verse 5, sin's sacrifice. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we, we are healed. And one of the difficult things to the mere admirer of Jesus, you know, the one that, that sees him in him a great example but nothing else, no Savior, no Lord, no sacrifice for sin, no Redeemer, no ransom paid, is that while we see in Scripture a clear setting forth of God's purposes and redemption, redemptive history for his people and his truth for all of life, the Bible doesn't reveal these things to us in, in ways that, naturally speaking, we can just understand them. We can come to the Scriptures and just discern it and figure it out. So along with this scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, there was also another, a separate goat present. The goat who was implied that he was not sent away. He was not living. The other goat had a different end than the one that was set free, bearing the sins of God's people away from them. Leviticus, again, chapter 16, verses 15 through 16, we read about this first goat, what the high priest was to do. He was supposed to kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so we have in Christ one person fulfilling these two roles, these two roles of this day of atonement. These sacrificial animals were two, but Christ is one. The servant was one who would complete in himself both of these duties. And it's helpful to understand the process as it happens in Leviticus. The first goat on the Day of Atonement was sacrificed in order, fundamentally, to make peace with God. That's why the blood was sprinkled in the holy place, in the holy of holies is to effectively propitiate or to remove the wrath of God. That's where God's presence was in the tabernacle or the temple, was in that holy place, and that holy of holies was to remove his wrath from his people for their sins. And so this, this sacrifice goat, his, its blood was brought into the temple and signified as it was sprinkled on all these uh, furniture of the temple that the wrath of God was removed, especially as it was sprinkled on the mercy seat itself. The wrath of God was removed that was properly the wrath that the sins of his people had deserved, had won. So this is what came before the goat that was removed from the presence. There's two words that are helpful theological terms, and they're getting sort of lost in the milieu of the way that we're so lazy and, and the way that we think about the, theology these days. But I want to give you these terms. The removal of the wrath of God by that first goat, very important word, has been summarized in the word called propitiation. We read about that in Romans 3.25, also variously in 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 4. But what we see there is that 
God's wrath is atoned for. The, the sins of the people are atoned for so that God can relate to his people not in wrath, but with peace. Not condemnation, but with salvation. And this is the first word that summarizes what happens there, the propitiation. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, the Greek word that is rendered there, that is used there, literally means the mercy seat. This is the way that God will show mercy to sinners. But there, the mercy seat is Jesus himself, his blood. He becomes the means whereby God's mercy is shown to us. And that's what's being signified in here in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The second word is the word expiation. An expiation, if propitiation has to do with the removal of a vertical wrath, the vertical relationship with God, Expiation has to do with a horizontal removal. That's why the goat is sent away. Sin is removed from our, as you were, bill. (laughs) That bill is cast out. It was nailed to the cross, even when Christ was nailed to it in Colossians 1. And so these two terms are summarized and they're fulfilled even in this foretelling picture in the servant, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as we look at what happened here to this servant, nothing less than death is what has occurred. He was pierced for our transgressions. Pierce regards a fatal stabbing. Many times in the New Testament, this term pierced is used to describe a fatal stabbing. And in fact, in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 9, here is a dragon, the enemy of God's people, the enemy of Israel, who is pierced, and the implication there is that he is slain. And then we read in Revelation, don't we, several places where this dragon, Satan, finally is pierced. He is finally destroyed in the end by Christ. And this is the picture of Scripture. This is the story of history. You know, in Revelation, it's very interesting that you can summarize the history of redemption this way. Is that God saves the princess from the dragon. The king saves the princess from the dragon by sending the prince. It's one of the best summaries of Revelation I've ever heard. The king... The Lord God Almighty sends his son to save the woman, to save the princess, his people, from the dragon. And that's what we're reading here. But here's how it happens. Here's how God saved his church, the church, the bride of Christ. It was through the death of the husband. It was through the piercing of the servant. He was crushed for our iniquities. As the piercing of the servant was to end in death, so too with being crushed for our iniquities. But this also has the idea of his humility. He would be crushed. He would be brought low to a place of torment. As we saw already in chapter 52, verse 14, lower than any other person ever was in his suffering. 
Often the word used to translate, translated crush here is used as a picture for those who are destroyed in their weakness or in their lowliness, whether at the hands of an oppressor or in the judgment of God. But notice once again here, take notice of what and why he was pierced and what caused him to be crushed. He says, it was our transgression. He says, it was our iniquities, our griefs, our sorrows he bore away for us. And he was put to death for our transgressions, our law-breaking, our iniquities, our crooked ways. And we now see here is the answer for the first time in this, song, in this servant psalm that the suffering servant explicitly is suffering to this degree because of our sin, because of you and I. Do you remember when you first believed in Christ? Do you remember the mixture of joy? Do you remember the joy of peace? Do you remember being awakened to the severity of your sin? If there's one thing we don't understand this day is how serious sin is. We just joke it off, and we laugh about it, and we even celebrate it. We promote it. But as Christians, sin is, is what caused our Savior to be pierced. Our sin. It's what caused the sinless Son of God to be crushed. so that we won't be. We can't think of sin lightly and worship rightly. You go out here and people will laugh you up and down when you take sin seriously. And you'll never be, you'll never be humiliated like Christ was when he bore your sin. So take the laughter, take the scorn from a hostile world, and don't think of sin as something that you can laugh at. You know, I love comedy, but most of the comedy that is in the world today mocks and makes light of sin. And there is something that Christians a generation ago understood that when you allow sin to be made light of, pretty soon you're going to have a very light view of sin. Comedy is a, is a good thing. It can be a very good thing. It can be a very health, healthy thing. But it can break down barriers that need to be up. There's a little bit of practical exhortation. Pray that God would give you an understanding of the seriousness of your sin. You say, man, we don't need people walking around in shame and in guilt. Jesus bore your shame. He bore your guilt. What you will do when you walk around with the knowledge of the seriousness of your sin is you will walk around with a new zeal 
a renewed zeal, perhaps, for Christ. A new love for him. A new allegiance to him. A new willingness to serve him. To present yourself a living sacrifice before God. Not conforming to the world. You see, how you look at Christ is going to be in measure how you relate to others in this world. And you can't look at Christ rightly in this world if you don't see that he bore your sin. He was your substitute. What you deserved, he took upon himself. He was pierced, he was crushed for us. But not only can we see that, that exchange, our sin upon him, his suffering alleviates ours. You see, for the first time in this servant psalm, we see blessedness. We see blessing. Listen to what he says next. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's why the, the hymn writer said, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Here's the fulfillment of what was foreshadowed in the Day of Atonement, now being foretold by the prophet, now being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in his sufferings on the cross. The guilt of the sin-bearer of God's people would be removed, not by virtue of two goats, one bearing their sin outside the camp, and one atoning by bringing priests with God for sin by its blood, but by the virtue of one man, the servant of the Lord. And Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 2.24, He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And again in Romans 4.25 and Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget that while the symptoms of sin are awful in this life, sin itself is our great infirmity. It was our great calamity. The gospel puts social ills, the gospel, I'm sorry, that puts social ills as its priority is not a gospel at all. And it's a gospel we see everywhere around us, and it's growing. This week I heard people talking about how the gospel means that we have to be socially involved. The gospel is no power unless we're out there making change. If we believe that's the gospel, we'll never be saved. That's law. 
It's not gospel. Gospel is that God, through Jesus Christ, did everything to save you. That's gospel. The gospel affects change in you and in society, but the gospel is that God did it for you through Jesus Christ. There is no ought in the gospel. Do this and you shall live is the law. Faith, repentance, comes through the gospel, which is God did it for you. It's God did it for you. It's done. And it's so close when you start hearing people say, but we have to do this in the community, and we have to do this organized social thing out there, otherwise we're not the church. Because they're getting it so close. I'm hearing people say, but the gospel isn't enough these days. And they're putting the social thing in front of the church saying, this is what the church has to be about. And there is no church unless the gospel is first grounded on, or the the church is first grounded on the gospel. We can never get these things misoriented yes the church must be about social justice if you will but that's only a result as a result of the gospel it is not the gospel it is not the good news I say it to you all the time but never forget it never forget this that if anybody wanted to enact social change in the world and could have done it through his activity in the world, it was Jesus. It was Jesus. He could have gone and healed everybody from poverty, and I say it all the time, he could have given everybody food, healed them from that. We read it, didn't we? And what did he do? He went to the cross. Our greatest need is the cross. And from there, we become socially, or you could say it this way, earthly good. Here's how Peter again says it. As we see, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to pass over that point. We'll get to Peter soon. Those who esteem the servant, the right object of God's wrath, now see with the eyes of faith and testify. In fact, they profess that while he was the object's, object of God's wrath, they were the ones at fall. Do you understand that? Uh, they were saying he, they esteemed him smitten, stricken by God and afflicted, but now we're saying he bore our sin. He was pierced for our transgression. We understand now why he suffered. It wasn't because of his sin. It was ours. Third, finally, sin's shepherd, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This turning here by the sheep is purposeful. This is alienation from God. This is what in Romans chapter 5 is called enmity with God. We were enemies of God. These are sheep who were without a shepherd. They didn't want him. 
They removed themselves away from him. And it is one that we must admit to. Look at this is a confession of guilt. This is a confession of sin. We like sheep have gone astray. Nobody is saved unless they first confess that they themselves are the sinful ones. We have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And this is such a good analogy of the sort of sin that we are falling into as a culture, isn't it? And so that should tell us something about ourselves if we're in the church. If we're not in our own way, if we're not pursuing our own path, but if we are God's people, if you belong to Christ, it's God who has brought you here. This is not the way you naturally would do things. We would go away from God. But He has brought us peace through Christ. But the confession of guilt is as crucial to receiving the salvation that God offers to us in Christ is the faith to receive him. Faith recognizes our own sin. It recognizes that in Jesus is the healing. It's the forgiveness for our sins. It's the justification that we have in him. Because we know that we're not justified in ourselves. We could never be forgiven if it was up to us to pay our sin debt. 1 Peter again says this, chapter 2, verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned. You see that returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The burden that Christ is said to bear away in verse 4 is not merely the effects of sin in us. It's not merely the guilt and the sorrow, these effects of sin, which are real and deep and painful. But here it is clear that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore our crookedness. He bore our brokenness before God. This is a substitutionary atonement that we're reading about. This is him in our place, us benefiting from him, him being condemned in our place. There have been many various theories of the atonement in the history of the church, and one recent theory it's gaining in popularity even today is that Jesus' death was merely an example for us to follow. Jesus gave his life as a pattern for us, and we've been learning about that pattern, the Christian life, but I've tried to lay the foundation over and over and over again. We only follow Jesus as an example after we recognize the truth of his person and his work. Only when we have received the mercy of God and stand in that grace of his sacrifice for us by faith alone do we follow after the pattern of his sacrifice for our lives. If we see in this sacrifice merely an example for us to follow, this fails to capture the heart of the gospel the purpose of the death of Christ, the glory of forgiveness of sin, the glory of reconciliation, namely that he became our substitute for sin. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin for us. 
him who knew no sin, that in him we would have the righteousness of God in him. As I've been pointing out, the servant of the Lord doesn't bear his own transgressions. He bears ours. As we come to the table of the Lord this morning then, confess your sins before God. And see those sins paid for in Christ. Fix your attention and affections on the servant of the Lord who loved you and gave himself in your place for your eternal salvation. Let's pray. Our Father, these are things that we don't, we don't get throughout the week in this world. We're not going to get them in popular media. We're not going to get them through most of our co-workers. And so often we don't even have these things on our lips as we live from day to day. But you've brought us back here to worship you, to be reminded of them, to be set firmly and grounded in them again, namely in the person and work of Christ. Lord, we are humbled when we see how deeply and how greatly again he was humbled for us, his body broken, his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins, to make reconciliation between you and us, to be our salvation. And so we humbly come before you as we partake of these elements in the supper that Christ taught us to observe until he comes and be glorified as we partake in them, in him, in Christ's name, amen.